Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Views on View. I am your host, Lindsay Wardell. With me today is Steve Edwards. Hello from Portland. Cloudy and gloomy Portland. Austin Gill. Howdy from San Diego. And special guest today is Greg Pollack. Hey, glad to be here from Orlando, Florida. I'm glad you can join us today. Greg, how about you introduce yourself a little bit so everyone knows who you are and what it is you do? Sure. So my background is I've got a computer engineering major with a theater minor, so I'm a little theatrical. But through the years, I've gone back and forth in my career from programming and working for other people to creating my own startups to working for other people. And about 11, 12 years ago now, I found a passion for teaching developers. Went and taught a bunch of conferences and did some consulting work, and that led into creating this website called Code School. And the first course there was Rails for Zombies, where we taught a lot of developers Rails and sort of built that, learned more about business than I ever really did in that, but really found a passion for teaching developer stuff. And then left Code School a few years ago, and about two years ago started View Mastery, where I teach Vue.js online. Early in my career, I figured out which jobs were worth working at and which ones weren't, mostly by trial and error. I created a system that I used to find jobs and later contracts as a freelancer. If you're looking for a job or trying to figure out where you should go next, then check out my book, The Max Coder's Guide to Finding Your Dream Developer Job. The book walks you through figuring out what you want, vetting companies that meet your criteria, meeting that company's employees, and getting them to recommend you for a job. Don't settle for whoever has listed their job on the job board. Go out and proactively find the job you'll love. Buy the book at devchat.tv slash job book. That's devchat.tv slash job book. Yeah, I got to say, Greg, you know, I've listened to a lot of different uh, developers and tutorials and stuff over the year. You've got the smoothest, silkiest voice out of anybody I've ever listened to. It's just like <laughs> so smooth and silky. It's like, oh, you just sit and listen forever. I love it. I really appreciate that. I've realized recently I've started to really enjoy leading meditations. Like in, in some of the time that I've been teaching self-awareness stuff. I enjoy leading meditations and I, and I get the sense that some people like it too. And that, that reinforces that idea you just said. So I appreciate that. Yeah, you could totally host like late night jazz radio or <laughs> do some of those YouTube videos where people talk really quietly into the yeah. microphone. What's you know, that called again? Or even NPR, <laughs> you know, like the classic sweaty, you know. Uh, yeah, I know exactly. Live, Wait, you know. Where, where they talk like really intimately into the microphone, like this. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Some of the Saturday recording they do. Yeah, um, oh, cool. I I gotta say, Greg, I was. I mean, I I got a chance to run into you at a ViewConf this year, and we we spoke briefly. And and again, you know, I want to thank you for the work that you've done because I know when I was getting started in web development, Code School was something that really helped me along. So. Appreciate that. Thanks. That's always great to hear. Yeah, and it's really cool that, you know, the the stuff that you you guys are putting out at View Mastery, I'm sure that's helping loads of people. So I hope so. So it's code school, just real quick rehash. I know I've heard about this history in, in the past. Is that get taken over by Pluralsight or merged with Pluralsight? Because I'm when you look for code school, it comes up with Pluralsight. Correct. Yeah. So, yeah, about uh, three, four years ago, Code School was acquired by Pluralsight. That's a whole nother story that I'd be happy to give sometime, but it's more about business than anything else. But yeah, we got to a point in our business where we had multiple options in us and Pluralsight, a bigger company that had a huge sales team that we would have had to create if we continued to grow on our own. So it just made sense. It was great culture. And and yeah, they, they kind of, they acquired Code School and 
everybody who had worked there for longer than a year got a real nice retirement fund. Oh, nice. So today in particular, we're here to talk about V3. And you just had a recent discussion. It sounds like yesterday, as of recording, you had a discussion with Evan Yu about the View 3 that's coming out and the reactivity changes that are coming in that. Is that correct? Yeah. So basically, well, really at ViewConf US at the beginning of March, we sat down with Evan Yu because he was going around conferences teaching this workshop called the View 3 Deep Dive. And we said, hey, can we record that? Like do a real high quality recording so we can bring that out to people. And so sat down with him, recorded him walking through all the steps of that workshop so that... And now on View Mastery, we just put out the first uh, like six parts of that workshop. Each video is like anywhere between 10 and 20 minutes long. And the first two lessons on that are completely free if you want to go and have a taste of what it's like to check out that course. When we dive deep into View 3, we build View 3 from kind of scratch using all the tools and techniques that Evan has together. It's really amazing to watch him code and see how his mind works and see how all the little optimizations that he has built into View 3 to make it quicker, more efficient, and even more fun to program. That sounds cool. I haven't checked it out yet, but I'm looking through uh, the list right now, and I think I'm going to take a peek. Yeah, I've watched the first two videos, and yeah, they're interesting. So I'm going to have to pony up and get the rest of those for sure. I was supposed to, I remember I was really bummed. A year ago, my employer was going to send me to UConf in Orlando, and I was going to take Evan's workshop on, you know, deep dive into view or whatever it was. And then I ended up changing jobs and not able to go, and I was so bummed. Oh, that sucks. Yeah, I have to... Yeah, you mentioned reactivity and with view two, and I produced a whole course around this as well, showing how we use defined property to create reactivity from scratch. It's really an amazing exercise to watch, you know, how it's built up from scratch using JavaScript. So I was using object defined property in view two. And in my course on view mastery called view three reactivity, I also build it from scratch using the new techniques in JavaScript using proxy and reflect, which allows us to create reactivity with even more extensibility because, you know, there was limitations and caveats, a bunch of reactivity caveats we ran into with you too. Like when you added additional properties or you're dealing with arrays or you know, modifying that reactive object. With U3 and the way it uses reflect and proxy, those caveats no longer exist. We can now add properties dynamically and you know, work with arrays. So both in my reactivity course and in the deep dive, we go through how reactivity works now with U3 and some of the benefits of how to do so. And I find you know, it's really worthwhile to take the time you know, in this deep dive, basically, where you're, you're learning how to understand how View 3 works. Because you watch, you know, you kind of watch Evan describe all the optimizations, and then he builds the View compiler from scratch that goes from HTML into render functions, and then how to, you know, the render functions then go into virtual nodes. And then we build a mounting function together, which takes the virtual nodes and um, mounts them onto the DOM and does, you know, real DOM calls that gets you shows what's in your browser. And then we build a patch function, which takes, you know, two virtual nodes, compares the two, and then updates the web page. This is all pretty advanced stuff that thankfully View all, you know, does 
for us. So we don't have to think about it most of the time. But as a view developer, it's nice to know what's going on under the hood because occasionally you're going to want to debug your code. You're going to hit an error. You're going to want to put a debug in there. And when you put a debugger in there, inevitably, sometimes you're going to be looking through view source code. And if you have a basis of which to know like uh, what modules, what the different modules do in view, then it's going to be more understandable what's happening and you'll, it'll be easier to debug. And also with the deep dive, it's really useful if you are adding any additional functionality on view, building your own libraries, the add-on to view. This is all good stuff to, to know, as well as if you, know, you yourself want to make your own contributions, you're going to need to know how it fits together. Oh, yes, I definitely need to know this. I'm always one of those people that, you know, I've learned over the years uh, through doing tech support or any of those type of job that the best way to support something is to know how it operates. So the, the better you know how it operates, the better you can tell when something's wrong or when it's right. So just to clarify one thing you were talking about, the change to view three, with view two, it's pretty, you know, it's always set that if you wanted to have a reactive piece of data within a component, you always had to declare it up front. And I know there was ways around it. I think you could use like view set, if I remember correctly, change something on the fly or add something on the fly. But you're saying with view three, that's changed. So you don't have to go through those lengths to add or change dynamic properties within a component. Right, yeah. With the way that it works now with Reflect and Proxy, you can add things dynamically as you need them and you don't have to declare it up front. It's pretty oh. neat how it works. Yes, I like so, it. Just to clarify, Reflect and Proxy, those are new features in JavaScript, right? That's not something that's specific to Vue. Correct. Those are features in JavaScript that Vue 2 didn't, couldn't really take advantage of because there was a promise made that said it needed to support a certain version of IE. forget what version. But basically, we couldn't use new features in JavaScript. And with Vue 3, now you know, we're saying, okay, well, Vue 3, we're assuming a more intelligent browser. Not that you can't have fallbacks, but we can now use more you know, newer features of JavaScript like proxy and reflect, which has been which has been in there for a while now. In that case, if if U3 is using these new features that Internet Explorer doesn't support, that, that means that Vue 3 includes the fallbacks. So that I'm assuming it would just go back to the old reactivity model. Is that right? I think by default it should it, it ships, you know, assuming modern version. We're talking about like an old version of IE, I think it's like IE9 or something like that. But oh, I do okay. think you can I think there's a library plugin that they've always said they're gonna add. So you can include the plugin if you wanna do reactivity the old way. If you're okay you know, if you have to support old versions of IE. Yeah, presumably it's just going to have like polyfills that you can add to support things like that. So Greg, do you know with the deep diving into the source code and using the the proxies and and reflect, do you know which of those features specifically handles the like dynamically adding properties or reactive properties to the view instance? Adding reactive properties to the view instance. Well, basically, you create a reactive object. It creates a proxy. You end up using the proxy, mm-hmm. and then when you you can simply add new you know, properties to that object that you declared as reactive. And because of how you set traps using proxy, I'm using all your jargon words, using traps, using, you know, inside the proxy, every time you call get or set on it, it's simply using those get and set methods. Whereas before with object, what was it? Set property, what was it? Object... 
dot set property is that no set uh, defined De- property and with defined, defined property, property you are actually defining the get and set on the properties on the object and using proxy you're kind of defining the get and set on the proxy so that all properties use those no matter what so you can just start using new properties on it and it's going to use the get set and the proxy and you don't have to call define property to set a new get and set on the property itself does that make sense could you follow that visually <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, just take a look at this flowchart that I have right here, and it should be all really <laughs> easy and clear. Yeah, right. uh, no, oh yeah, God. I mean that. Like, I, I get that. I think anyone that like has looked into proxies, that kind of starts to make sense. I think if you haven't looked into proxies, I remember my first dive into that was like, I don't know, it took like two or three times looking at it to like kind of grok it. So I understand that. I guess I guess the part that I was asking about, which also may not be the best for you know uh, podcasts, but was like where reflect comes in, or or specifically like with view two, if we had an array or an object that was not defined as a as a reactive object, we could use the view dot set method. And I'm I guess I was just kind of wondering like why why we don't need that where how it works that we can add new new reactive properties without having to use a few set. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think yeah, I kind I of Maybe. said that. <laughs> I think I, I think yeah. it's the same answer. <laughs> but yeah. Um, so proxies then. Proxies. Yeah. It's because it's a proxy and you're redefining the traps on the proxy so that you're not defining a new get and set for each property anymore. You don't have to do that. Okay. And like you were saying, it's it's really useful if you want to get deep into view to understand how all of this works. But if you're an average developer somewhere, you don't need to learn about proxies to use view three, right? You don't need to worry about these traps or handlers or anything. Yeah, precisely. This is something, you know, once you've learned all the basics with view, maybe you've developed a few apps and you want to take your skills up to the next level to the, you know, maybe more advanced developer, then it, I think it makes sense to starting to get more intimately familiar with the source code that you're working with. One of the advantages of Vue, in my opinion, is it makes things like when I ran into that the first reactivity model or the first time using Vue and like running into reactivity, it just makes things really intuitive in a way that because I had never seen it before, it I didn't realize something could be so intuitive. You know, like doing stuff before Vue, you're like, yeah, this is the most intuitive way to approach it. And then you see that as like, oh, no, I was wrong. <laughs> this is like, this is way easier. And yeah, just kind of kind of works as expected. Yeah, it's interesting how we got used. And the cool thing, maybe we start talking about the con. It's a good transition into the composition API. In the same way, in View Three, you know, we're used to putting all of these configuration options into different parts of a component. And now that we have this setup method using the composition API, it opens up yet another way we can code our View components. And in a, in a kind of in a different way that in some cases when you're running into reusability and reusing business logic and really complex components that have multiple parts, now we have a way to keep our code even more organized. So it's fascinating to see how there were drawbacks and how Vue 2, when your components got really large or when you needed to reuse code across different components and business logic, there were drawbacks. And if you had worked in a big Vue 2 application, you kind of know what I'm talking about when these components get huge 
and they have a lot of different functionality inside of them. There was no perfect way to extract into pieces the different functionality inside of a single component. And now with the composition API, now you have an option that is kind of let go of a lot of the same, a lot of those drawbacks that you've run into and allows you to just create even more beautiful design patterns in Vue. So one of the main organizational principles of the Vue 3 API, as I understand it, is that you're able to group by feature as compared to, compared to functionality. Whereas in mm-hmm. Vue 2, you would have, okay, here's all my watchers, here's all my methods, here's all my computed function, here's you know, my hooks. Where now, you, you know, so for a given feature, you might have, you need something from each of those, where now you can group all of the things for some sort of feature within your component together. So they're all together. Is, is that correct? Yeah. And it's definitely worth saying that I think, you know, 90% of people, 95% people inside View 3 are still going to be using the Options API. Like that is still great and perfect for very simple components. But yeah, when things start to get more complex, it's the, the composition API really allows you to shine by allowing you to further separate your code into features because you end up, you know, you'll have a component that has three different features and one side effect. And it's like, you could either have a huge component, split it out into different ways or organize by feature, organize into composition functions. And it just provides you an alternative to mix-ins and using scope slots. And yeah, that's just cleaner. Doesn't have as many drawbacks. Have you gotten into uh, a code base that's maybe transitioning from view two to view three? And, and have you looked into the story around like taking a, yeah, just taking some view, some large view two options components into and converting them to view three? I can't say I've been working with any real, you know, real application examples recently because I've been diving into the deep dive. But yeah, so I'm not sure I can answer that question very well other than what I've already said. Yeah, I'd be curious to hear because it seems like I think that the, the, yeah, the composition points that you're talking about is having these kind of isolated chunks of related code co-located within the component is going to make things a lot easier to understand and you're not doing the whole like scrolling up to the data and then scrolling down to the uh, methods and scrolling up to the computed properties and just to mm-hmm. you know figure out related p- bits of code that'll all be uh, it'll all be together. But yeah, be curious to see how it plays out with the transition. I think I heard a while back that there may be a tool for transitioning Vue two app to Vue three app. But yeah, I know I they're working on that. Yeah, when they you know when the documentation is closer, when we're closer, probably to you know release candidate, I'm sure we'll start hearing about guides and tools that will allow us to upgrade from Vue two to Vue three. Keeping in mind that doesn't mean it's going to convert your Vue two options API components into Vue three composition functions because you don't need to. All that stuff's just going to work exactly as is. Right, it'd be kind of a nightmare to have like hundreds or thousands of components that all of a sudden you know, have all changed and you didn't write that, you didn't change that code? Yeah, there's nothing wrong with Options API. It's very straightforward when you're dealing with, you know, the majority of components. It's just when you get in more complex situations, sometimes it's nice to have a different way to organize your business logic. In your opinion, what would be like a good, a good, like a a red flag that it might be time to change over to or consider the 
a composition API, or maybe even better yet, like when you're planning to create a new component, when would you consider the composition API over the options API? Right. I think it has to do with when you write a component and you're doing, you know, you're using good component design patterns where, you know, each component has its own bit of functionality associated perhaps with a different piece of user interface. And you probably get to a point where a certain component just has a lot of different concerns inside of it. Like it has to deal with, what would be a good example, with you know, a blog post. And a blog post has the ability to share and it also has comments. So it has all these different concerns. And if in using good component design, you end up with still with one component that just has a ton of code in it, maybe above you know, 150 lines of code. There's some pretty complex components out there. And that's where you might look at that and go, okay, <laughs> you know, this, this, has, this is dealing with the configuration of four different kinds of features. And if I wrote this where I organized all of the code by feature, it would be a lot more organized. It'd be easier to read, easier to maintain, easier to understand what's going along, maybe even easier to test. If I rewrite this using a composition function, then you might decide to try that out. Besides just keeping things more organized, right? This is about code reuse patterns. So if I notice different parts of my application need a login form, or like no, maybe it could even be like a like a special kind of submit button, right? Or we're gonna, you know, I think a lot of people will start using these, even perhaps even very in very configurable like form helpers. It might be useful that I can, you know, I create a composite. I use the composition API to build reusable business logic that I can use in different parts of my application. It provides a really good way to be able to do that and configure it as well in a way that's just reads better and has less downfalls than, you know, mix ins and scope slots. Yeah. So that was a question I had, Greg. You had mentioned in passing that the View 3 composition API has some benefits over. Uh, View 2 options API in terms of extracting common functionality across multiple components. So, you know, mix-ins generally, I think, are the uh, default way to do that in View 2. So what were the problems with mix-ins that you saw and what, how does the View 3 composition API address those? Sure, yeah. So the good part about mixed-ins is you can organize stuff by feature. The not-so-good is they're conflict-prone. You can end up with property name conflicts because you have two mixed-ins that are using the same naming. It's not clear on the relationships, how mixed-ins interact, if they do. And they're not easily reusable if you want to configure the mix-in across other components. Right? So often we've got you know, helper code that needs to be configured. It's not easy to do that with mixins. And then, of course, you know, the, another solution would be make, what about mixin factories? I could create a mixin that creates a mixin, and then I could send it a configuration. And there's still some disadvantages with that. And then I could look at scope slots, which addresses some of these downsides. However, your configuration then ends up in your template. And I feel like configuration should stay in my code and not in my template HTML. And uh, that's just a few of the disadvantages. But yeah, if you take a look at my View Essentials course on View Mastery, the first video is a, it's just a seven, eight minute video and it goes over all of this. Why you should consider the composition API, the downfalls, and why each of those other ways of reusing code has its disadvantages and how the composition API aims to solve that. So let me ask you this. Greenfield project, brand new component. Are you going 
Right. Are you gonna are you gonna start with a little data function or are you gonna start with a setup function? It depends on a lot of things. If my team, you know, as an engineer, I have to give you my scientific answer, which is it depends. It, it, it depends on a few things. It depends if your team, you know, says from the outset, oh my gosh, we love the composition API. Let's all use that. Okay, cool. Or, or like, we really love TypeScript. And, you know, this, this setup function in the composition API really supports TypeScript well. Let's just use it all the time. Then you might use it all the time. If, however, you know, you've got people of all different levels using Vue, and everybody's really familiar with the Options API, there's nothing wrong with using the Options API. And then again, if you think it's going to be a really complex you know, component that needs a lot of different configuration and has a lot of different features in it that aren't better off in other components themselves, then sure, maybe use the setup function. But you know, I think it's... I think it's really a minority of the time you're going to find people using it. It wasn't created for everyone to use. It was only for really specific use cases where you need an alternative and all the things that we've already said. One of the biggest pain points that I find as I talk to people about software is deployment. It's really interesting to have the conversations with people where it's, I don't want to deal with Docker. I don't want to deal with Kubernetes. I don't want to deal with setting up servers. I don't, you know, all of these different things. And in a lot of ways, DevOps has gotten a lot easier and in a lot of ways, DevOps has also kind of embraced a certain amount of culture around applications, the way we build them, the way we deploy them. I've really felt for a long time that developers need to have the conversations with DevOps or adopt some form of DevOps so that they can take control of what they're doing and really understand when things go to production, what's going on, so that they can help debug the issues and fix the issues and find the issues when they go wrong and help streamline things and make things better and slicker and easier so that they'll more generally go right. So we started a podcast called Adventures in DevOps. I pulled in one of the hosts from one of my favorite DevOps shows, Nell Shamrell Harrington from the Food Fight show, and we got things rolling there. And so this is more or less a continuation of the Food Fight show where we're talking about the things that go into DevOps. So if you're struggling with any of these operational type things, then definitely check out Adventures in DevOps. And you can find it at adventuresindevopspodcast.com. So one quick rabbit trail, you mentioned TypeScript. I know that Vue 3 itself is written with TypeScript, if I remember correctly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So is, does that, I'm assuming then that it's more, easy, more easier, better integration <laughs> with TypeScript in a Vue 3 component, or did you think you know, we had sufficient tools with Vue 2 to integrate TypeScript, or is there any improvements for TypeScript integration with Vue 3? Oh, yeah. There's, yeah, definitely. I mean, when you were trying to really get full TypeScript support with Vue 2, there was a lot of limitations. You would install a library and there was caveats. There was things when you started working with UX, there was some weird stuff you had to deal with if you really wanted to completely use TypeScript. And a lot of those have been taken care of um, and now are a lot easier to use in Vue 3. I can't say that I've honestly built an app with you three using TypeScript because you don't really need to. It's so funny how I remember back with Angular, when Angular moved to TypeScript, it was clear that if you use this opportunity to do things the TypeScript way using this new version of Angular, it was the right way to go. And it's really kind of not that case with Vue. I mean, and I think it's great. You can, you know, if you're not, if you decide not to use TypeScript with Vue 3 and you're just using regular JavaScript, you don't really, you don't lose any functionality. There's no extremely compelling reason to use it or to not use it. 
it really depends on your team and how much you love typing, <laughs> you know, and how much you want your, you know, errors to pop up in your editor before they get, you know, into compile time and into your browser. Because, you know, that's the benefit of adding a lot of type declarations everywhere is that you're going to be able to see bugs in your code editor that you might not otherwise. And that's also the benefit since now Vue is using TypeScript, you, we actually get to take advantage of even more like type hints and definitions right there in our code editor and intelligent errors and descriptions and what is it like function definitions and the definitions of the arguments in functions like right there in our code editor. So we get to take advantage of that. And the cool part about that is we take advantage of that whether or not we're actually using TypeScript. We don't have to, we can just be using regular JavaScript in our editor and take advantage of all the features that having Vue 3 and TypeScript gives us right out of the box. So, you know, if you love TypeScript and you, you know, and your team loves it too, yeah, you should code Vue 3 with TypeScript. But if you're like, no, nah, I'm good, I'm good, can I just use it without it? I'm like, yeah, there's no reason not to use it without it. You can. So you get the benefits of TypeScript without having to use TypeScript because the core is written in TypeScript. So exactly. Yeah, it's nice. Best of both worlds. Yeah, you'll get, you know, I listen to a lot of different podcasts or read articles about TypeScript. And like with any tool uh, or utility, you'll get your true believers like, dang it, you're wrong if you're not using this, you know, in JavaScript. And other people are like, yeah, you know, it's a good tool to use if I, you know, if I learn it. And other people are, now nah, you don't need it at all. So you get a wide spectrum of opinions on it. But I just wanted to bring that up because I know it's, it's definitely come up and will come up in the future. Mm-hmm. Since we're talking TypeScript, I was just listening to, I think, the latest episode of the Enjoy the View podcast. And they had Jack Coppa on there. He gave a talk as well at ViewConf on integrating TypeScript into a View app. And it sounds, it sounds like the story has gotten a bit better these days. I remember a long time ago, I like, tried it and there was a lot of, uh, a lot of hoops you had to jump through. And so I'd be curious to see kind of, you know, there's a lot, of, a lot of talk about the benefits of support for TypeScript in Vue 3. But in Jack's podcast that I was listening to, there's other things, you know, the setup function is going to be easier for TypeScript to integrate with. But I'm wondering if, if you're still going to have issues with the rest of Vue or Vue's way of doing things in integrating TypeScript. So for example... When Vue 3 comes out, we'll have the composition API available. So we'll be able to use the setup function and we can use TypeScript there. And it's going to be, you know, like walking through a, a field of wildflowers and, and perfect. But if we end up using an options API component, are we still going to have the same challenges of working with TypeScript that we have today? Or if we want to put our code into the template section of a single file component? Are we still going to have issues like we do today with bringing TypeScript support into, you know, like that IntelliSense or the type safety in the actual template section of a component? So I don't know. I don't know, Greg, if you have any anything to say about like if those challenges in Vue 2 are going to change in Vue 3 just by the fact that the, the library itself is written in TypeScript or or what? I'm not, I don't think I'm qualified to answer that question. I haven't done a whole lot of TypeScript, <laughs> yeah. to be honest. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah, I'd be, cu- be curious to see. Like, I really like the idea of the setup function. And because I don't, I don't use TypeScript, but I do 
you know, one of my picks today, it's actually funny that we're talking about this. I'll get it. I'll get into it in the picks, but I do have like type safety and strongly typed. I like to have that in my, in my JavaScript. So the setup function is going to be very welcome, but I'll be curious to see if these other things are still affected. Thank you so much for telling us all about what you've learned about Vue 3 so far. I'd like to get into your online teaching. I mean, you've, you've had a, some experience at this at this point. I'd like to talk a little bit about that, if you don't mind. Yeah, I'd be happy to. What do you want to know? Well, I know from my experience, I, I've used things like Udemy for, for my own learning. I've used things like Udemy. I've uh, gone to Scott Talinsky on his website. I see your website. It's pretty cool. Part of the time, I want to you know, do my own kind of teaching, try to get that out there. What's it like for you to just get started with doing courses like this? Where do you, where do you start? Yeah, well, honestly, when we got started with View Mastery, we wanted to, you know, well, Code School, what we were really great at is being the starting point for learning any sort of web dev technology. That's what we aim to be. And I got really curious about what would it be like to pick a technology in the early adoption phase that hadn't yet made it to mainstream and help it get there and do it in a way that really motivated me. And that's why we wanted to do the big give back. So we really investigated a bunch of different technologies. Like which one is in the sweet spot right now that we could go and teach that we're somewhat familiar with, wouldn't be too hard to teach, that we could work with people who, you know, get in contact with people who are running it, it has a lively community, and it hasn't yet made it to mainstream. And after doing investigation, we were like, oh, view, view seems to be at a really good sweet spot. And so that's why we ended up picking View and ended up building courses on it. And really, you know, when it comes to if, you know, the first step, if you want to start building your own online courses, is to honestly figure out how to build a mailing list. So you're going to need a way to, to create an audience, right? Because it's not good enough to just, if you build it, they will come. You need a way to market to people and get people in. That could, you know, and it's not, sure, you create blog posts, you create, put out free videos, but that's not good enough. You've got to get a way to get people in your funnel. So it really comes down to a first step is a mailing list and how what we did at Vue Mastery, before we had out any content, we, you know, learned Vue and then we put together a Vue cheat sheet, which we had proofed by people on the core team, which we would pay. We paid as our domain experts. Is this correct? Then once we had a cheat sheet, we had a designer make it look nice. And then we put up a splash page, download our Vue.js cheat sheet right here. And, you know, give us your, you know, that's how you give people your email address. We'd write a blog post and then maybe put out a free video. And on that blog post or free video, we'd say, hey, at the end of the video, you know, hey, make sure you check out our Vue 3 cheat sheet. You can get free access to it right here. And then we capture somebody's email address, and send them the cheat sheet. And so once, you know, the first step is to really make sure you can build an audience. I see a lot of teachers that jump right into building content and think about audience secondary, but if you don't have an audience, then you're not going to be able to sell anything. So considering the searchability of YouTube and how popular of a, a platform it is, and, you know, YouTube is obviously not the only platform, but it is fairly predominant when it comes to any type of, of coding tutorials. Mm-hmm. You don't think it's that... How much does that play into building an audience as well in terms of just having good, solid content, you know, that looks good and sounds good on there and building it that way versus doing what you did to build a list ahead of time and then start putting content? Or do you think like maybe a combination work? Right. So putting up a blog post or putting up a video, no matter where you put up a blog post or a video like YouTube, 
isn't enough, right? So you're going to need to spend half your time building content and half your time doing sales and marketing. And that's why a lot of businesses fail. They don't spend, they don't realize that in order to have a successful business, you got to spend half your time doing sales and marketing, unless you pay somebody else to do that. And so sure, you can put up, you know, videos on YouTube and you can try to build that following, but that's the thing you've got to, you're going to have to drive people to your content. You have to have a way to drive people to your content. You can't assume it's just going to be discovered. If you build it, they will come. You've got to drive people there. And so, you know, if I wanted to build view three courses or, you know, view courses right now, what would I do? I would start publishing blog posts, maybe on somebody else's blog. And then, of course, at the end of the, in, in the blog post, you know, there's, you know, click here to download my cheat sheet so you can get on my mailing list. And then I would, you know, and sure, so I've got the, the blog version and then maybe I'd also create a video version of the blog post. I'd take that video version, I'd publish it on YouTube, sure, with a link back to the blog post. And then I would email all of the view news mailing lists and make sure they all knew about my blog post, doing the marketing there. If I plugged any libraries or talked about anybody who's an influencer in my article, I might have done that on purpose so that I could then say, hey, I mentioned you in my article and that thing you did. Would you mind retweeting my tweet? Right? So finding the influencers, asking them for favors, getting them to promote for you, you know, marketing tactics, the things that often developers don't really want to know exist. So you mentioned Twitter. How how big a tw- how big of an arrow is that in your quiver? I mean, is it something you use extensively? Is it just one tool among many? Because yeah, I generally hear that you know, amongst the development community, Twitter tends to be a pretty big driver of of traffic. I know, for instance, Adam Wath and the guy who does C- Tailwind CSS has talked about him and Steve Schroeder. I've talked about how they just started out doing like a daily tip on Twitter. And that was how they sort of built their audience before they got into their refactoring UI and Tailwind and stuff. Yeah, that's a great way to do it. Not as important as a mailing list, but still secondary. (laughs) The primary is always going to be getting emails. But then secondary, when you look at social media, yeah, that, that goes into it too. If you can build a following, you can market through those channels. And certainly there's Twitter, we've got Facebook as well. We created like a group on Facebook and we market towards through that as well. At one point in time, we've, you know, whenever I have taken the time to look at ad spend, (laughs) if you're good at creating content, like I'm not sure you should spend any time trying to figure out ads. I have not validated that because every time we venture into the world of paying for advertising, what we quickly realize is we're always better off creating more content or even paying people to create more content. Are we better off spending you know, uh, $300 for you know, promoting a tweet that promotes a course? Or are we better off spending $300 to get someone to write a blog article on our blog that then gets into all of the other... So it gets on social media with it, drives people to it. Like It's always, it's always going to be content as the best way to drive traffic. And I'm not sure it's ever going to be paid advertising. But that being said, you know, we've got at View Mastery, we've got one person who works full-time on support and marketing. And they're posting to our Twitter account and not only promoting our free content and our paid content, but other people's content as well. And so over the last two years, we've built up a good following. We're up to about 14,000 followers on the View Mastery account, which is pretty awesome. Yeah. Woo! <laughs> 
So just in general, you know, that's a pretty good primer. What about some specifics on videos themselves? So one of the, there's a video that you have of you mastery on creating the best video programming tutorials. Oh, so yeah. can you hit some of the high points about what goes into making a, an effective video tutorial? Yeah. Well, obviously, when it comes to creating video content, apparently I'm very anal. And I realize that like there's, there's a way that I like doing things. And so, yeah, I created this blog post, creating the best video programming tutorials, where I went over not only the stuff that I really valued, but I talked to a few of you know, my other teachers that I admire. And there's stuff like, you know, use a good microphone, like the microphone that I'm using right now is just a uh, condenser microphone. But a, a USB condenser microphone is great. I don't like video like programming tutorials where there's this disembodied voice talking over code. Whenever you're teaching theory or an idea or a process, I, I tell people, you got to go on screen. Otherwise, people are just staring at your code editor while you describe like a process. No, 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 no. Just, just, just bring yourself on screen, act like a human. People love learning from humans, not disembodied voices, and you'll be more engaging. Also, stuff like, you know, figure out how to use a screencasting editor on a Mac. I love ScreenFlow. It has every, all the tools you need. What else? Use animations, use, you know, slides when you have things to describe, when you have diagrams that you can use to help, you know, show how things function. Don't just teach syntax, teach the problem first. You know, some people will just be like, okay, we're going to teach the composition API syntax. Here's the refs and here's the reactive. And like, that's just, nobody wants to learn that way. Show, you know, define a problem. Okay, today we, this is the problem we're going to solve and let's use some code to solve the problem. Like that's more, much more entertaining than just showing me all the syntax. I could keep on going. I think that's plenty for now. Check out the blog post over on View Mastery called Creating the Best Video Programming Tutorials if you want to give, your, if you want to give it a try. So yeah, I, I think I tend to be sort of anal like the way you described and all the little details and stuff. So a couple detailed questions. I know that I was listening to a guy that I've gotten to know a little better recently, Eric Hanchett, who does a lot of, uh, he does a lot <laughs> of you tutorials. And one of the things he mentioned that you, you sort of touched on is the visual nature and, and you know showing yourself as a human as compared to the disembodied voice. Mm-hmm. Now, do you do it? In such a way where, okay, so here's me talking as a background, and then when you switch to your code editor, all you see is a code editor, or you're the type where you can see your code editor, and then you're maybe over in a corner of the screen, so you're seeing the whole time. <laughs> all those twitchers, that's what they do with their green screens. Right. Um, but you know, I'm not a fan of, um, if you want me to focus on your code while you're coding, don't put any distractions on the screen. So if, if you want me, if you're typing code and you want me to learn the code, then focus on that because I'm trying to focus on that. And if you're on the screen at the same time, I'm trying to focus on the code, honestly, it, it'll distract me. And so, yeah, I'm a fan of not being on the screen when, when you're teaching code. But then whenever you're introducing it or introducing a problem or there's a, ca- there's a caveat here, you might want to keep this in mind. Then come back on the screen and talk to me as a human when I'm not focusing on your code. I think that's the way to do it. Yeah, I've seen, I saw one developer one time where he'd put himself in the corner of the screen and it would cover his code and then you could see him like ducking and trying to move to get out of the way of the code that you were trying to see. <laughs> It was really so uh-huh. funny. And then the other thing you didn't mention, I don't know if it's mentioned in your post, is a good thumbnail. You know, for when you see 
your view listed, say maybe in suggested videos on YouTube or when you put it, you know, on your own site, is that something you see as, as making a difference in terms of traffic? I think primarily, primarily in YouTube or content. Well, primarily on YouTube. That's probably the simple answer. And then the more complex answer, you know, because you're right. When the suggestion videos come up, is you know, you want to have the, a, a really good cover image to get people to click on it. it. Has to look sexy. But the longer answer involves if you have free videos on your own website and you want to do the research to create all of the. Google video meta tags, <laughs> which you can, you know, it benefits you to do so because when people Google, often it'll show video results. And if it shows video results or people even will click the video tab, if you're using all the correct Google video meta tags, your video will appear in there with, and if it has a sexy thumbnail, then people will click on it. Gotcha. But if you're creating paid video, it doesn't really matter because, you know, Google's not going to link to that stuff if it's not free. And open, which a ton of our stuff is free and open. And that's, you know, part of the reason we do that is to capture search and also to get people consuming our content. That's another interesting lesson. Yeah, there's another (laughs) interesting lesson lately that we've been realizing over and over again when it comes to marketing. When it comes to marketing our content, we always have to do things that promote people engaging with our content. If anything is not, if any marketing campaign doesn't involve driving people to consume our content, then we can't do it. For example, with all of the people working from home and all the conferences getting canceled, we had the idea, hey, why don't we create an amazing view conference? We totally could do that. We have all the connections. We even know how to do good video and we have the ability to do live streaming. We could totally create a pretty amazing view conference. And and then we could like have the videos on our website. And we all kind of got excited about that for a few weeks. And then we were like, "But, but that doesn't follow the rule of getting people to consume our high-quality content. Oh, it doesn't. Okay. Well, what if for one week we take one of our paid courses and we make it completely free? Like, oh, yeah. Yeah, of course. Then uh, that makes sense because now we're driving people towards the content. So it's like any other marketing promotion like that doesn't include encouraging people to consume our content. It's not worthwhile, period. Another question I've had for content creators yourself is how you learn the content you're going to teach. So, you know, the old action goes, if you want to learn something, teach it because you have to be able to explain it to somebody else. But I know, I mean, do you learn stuff just to teach it or do you learn stuff through real life projects? Because I know in my experience, I've done a, a decent amount of teaching and training, usually internally, occasionally externally to an organization. And I find that the stuff that I teach best, I know because I've been using it on a real project as compared to just learning something to teach it, if that makes sense. So I'm curious, do you dive into this stuff and learn it with the goal of being able to teach it? Or is this stuff you're teaching that maybe you're using in actual projects? Or which, I guess the question is, what's your, how are you learning the stuff that you're teaching? That's a really good question. And I wasn't supposed to say that. I remember now on the, you guys have like a thing that the hosts are supposed to read. I mean, they uh, guess and it says, don't say that's a really good question after well, every if, question. If you only say it once, it's okay. I've heard, I've heard <laughs> podcasts before where every question is being interviewed. That's a good question. So as long oh, as you only say God. it once, you're okay. <laughs> Well, it's a mediocre question. I get a lot of people who say, yeah, man, I really want to teach this stuff, but I'm not an expert. 
I, I can't, I have to be an expert first before I can teach it, right? And I'm like, no, not really. We're not experts. And yeah, so I got, I got to say, like, I'm a teacher. I like to take really hard to learn technical topics and teach them in a good way. And I honestly, like, if you asked me, Greg, do you think you're like a, an expert at view? I'd be like, oh, hell no. And the thing is, I don't have to be. And here's why. When I go to teach a topic, what do I do? I go and I look at how two or three other people have already taught it. I can very easily see, okay, here's, here's, what, here's what was confusing. Here's how I can teach it better. This is missing a visual. And so I'm, you know, not only... So I'll put together a script. Here's how I'm going to teach it. Here's my code demo. And then what do I do is I go to at least one view expert. Usually it's a core team member. It's a view core team member. And I have, you know, here's my questions. Here's, here's my script so far. Can you please let me know how I'm doing? And because I have my content proofed by these domain experts, it means I don't have to be an expert. It means I don't have to have built projects with it because I can go straight to people who have and use them. You know, they're the domain expert. Probably, you know, even if I went and built a few projects with it, yeah, it would probably help me learn but I still wouldn't be an expert. I'd still want my stuff proofed by an expert. So I'm not sure it'd be completely worth my time, even though it'd probably help me be a better teacher. So I don't go out and build projects. I love teaching and putting together teaching content. And I'm, I'm not much of a website builder anymore these days. Although part of me, I think is sad. Got, well, got real sad when I realized like eight years ago, I was like, oh my gosh, I don't know if I'm ever going to be like building projects like I was ever again. Because it seems to seem to really enjoy this, but it was still hard to let go of, completely letting go of being a programmer and stepping into that teacher role. But it's really rewarding. I love putting together like it, it's such a big challenge when I have something really complex like the Composition ABI or Reactivity, and I get to sit back and go, "What would be the most effective way to teach this to the most people?" That's just that's just really exciting to me. Because I know a lot of the times I can look at how other people are teaching and then go, and it's even more exciting when I go, nobody thought to teach it this way. Sweet. Okay. I'm really excited now. I get to try to teach this in a way that nobody has before. And the most recent time I've done that is actually in the V3 deep dive with Evan Yu. I realized that because he's such a domain expert, his teaching, like, he assumes you understand a ton of stuff as he teaches. I mean, he does, a, he does a better job than I think most probably framework builders at explaining things at a beginner level, but still, there's a lot of concepts that he just dives right into. And so the first video of the View, Evan, Evan Yu's View 3 Deep Dive is me taking a step back and explaining some of the most complex modules uh, of how Vue is put together in a way that I haven't seen anybody else explain it. And that was really exciting to put together. That was a long-winded answer. I know your question was initially about building projects to teach, but I don't think you have to. I mean, I'm sure it makes you a better teacher, but it's not required. No, that, that makes perfect sense. You know, I, I was just asking what works for you and how you do it. But that makes perfect sense. And, you know, as you were talking, I'm thinking and realizing, you know, the goal of doing a video isn't necessarily to make somebody else an expert. The goal of video is to sort of um, make them thirsty to go and play with it on their own. And so, you know, and learn by trial and error and trial and error, like most of us learn. So yeah, you don't necessarily have to be an expert or want to be an expert. I'm just 
I was just more thinking, how do you learn your stuff so that you can teach it? But you've got access to domain to domain experts, like you said, and that's a that's a huge leg up. You know, when you're teaching anything, to be able to talk to somebody who really knows their stuff. Yeah, and you know, we pay them an hourly rate. We've got all the you know the core team members and their hourly rates, and we have improved for our content, and we pay them. Good deal. Awesome. Thank you so much, Greg. Have you thought about learning to do native iOS development? Are you using Swift at work? Or maybe you've considered writing applications for macOS. We have a podcast that covers all of that called iFreaks. We have a new panel and a lot of exciting things to talk about. So come check us out at iFreaksShow.com. At this point, we'll move on to our picks. Picks are the parts where we talk about things that we find interesting. doesn't have to be code related. So Greg, do you have any picks for us today? I know you just got through it with a lot of talking, but... <laughs> no worries. Yeah. Well, I just really finished watching the third season of Westworld. It was so, I, I love shows that are so in depth that you look forward to watching the explainer video online. I'm a big fan of what is it called? Alt Shift X that gives you the explainers. So I love that. And I'm also almost through the first season of Picard. Not that there's a second season yet, but uh, if you're a Star Trek fan, especially Next Generation fan, then I highly recommend it. I'm going to have to check that out. I haven't uh, worked up to getting a subscription with CBS yet. All right, Austin, what are your picks for today? So we talked a little bit about type, type safety and TypeScript and stuff. And I don't use TypeScript, but I have been using JS Doc a lot to write documentation for my JavaScript files. And I found that if you're using VS Code, you can enable a feature called, well, JS checking that will actually take or can use JS doc documentation or doc blocks and basically apply the same TypeScript checking to your standard JavaScript files. So it's been really awesome. It gives you all of the type safety features of like, you know, giving you the little red squiggly if you put something in as a string and it's a function that expects a number, you can have basically all of the strong typing that TypeScript provides that I've found anyway, with all with even like complex types like person or blog post. And uh, it's been really cool. So we'll put some links that I've found helpful for learning JS doc and enabling features in VS Code if you're using that in the show notes. Very cool. Thank you. Steve, what picks do you have? I'm going to go with musical route today, sort of repeat one I did from JS Jabber. And I'm going to go back to 1987 to one of my favorite albums of all time by Pink Floyd. That's Momentary Lapse of Reason. Now, I know all of the Pink Floyd purists will be screaming and shouting at me. It's not really Pink Floyd because this was the first album after Roger Waters had left. And if you read about the history, they're trying to make this while going through all the legal fights they were going through with Roger Waters in terms of being able to continue as Pink Floyd and so on. But for me and my musical tastes, it's one of those albums that, you know, 33 years later, I can still listen to start to end, you know, with the learning to fly. And then On the Turning Away is one of my favorite guitar solos at the end of all time. It's a great tune. And then you've got Sorrow at the very end. Just very good album. Again, not a... Not an album for the Pink Floyd purists, but still a, a really good Pink Floyd album. Cool. Thank you. So my pick today, we're recording on May 13th, and that matters because today is the 1.0 release of Deno. If you haven't heard of Deno, it is uh, being created by the creator of Node, 
Uh, it's been two years that he's been working on it, which is why the date was important. And version 1.0 is being released today. It's, it's a TypeScript. It, it uses TypeScript on the server, and it doesn't rely on a package manager like NPM. It allows for a lot of extra security. So it's really cool. If you're into server at any or server-side code at any level, check it out. Uh, that's deno.land. And I'll also include in the show notes the video where the creator started talking about it. So the video is 10 Things I Regret About with Brian Dahl. So those will both be in the show notes. So those are my picks today. Greg, thank you again for joining us. Is there any way that people should reach out to you if they have any questions or want to follow up with you? Sure, yeah. I can be reached at uh, greg at viewmastery.com or on Twitter at Greg Pollock. Cool. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for Uh, having me. Of course. Hope everyone enjoyed the show. If you want to reach out to any of us, we're at Views on View or devchat.tv. You can also reach out to me directly at Yagabush on Twitter. You can find Steve at Wonder95 and Austin at Stegosource. Hope you had a great time. We'll see you next week. Adios. See ya. Bye-bye. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.